Welcome to our second Pensions Lawcast. Today, we'll be focusing on some of the effects of the government's social distancing measures on the governance of occupational pension schemes. So, what impact has the government's social distancing measures had on the governance and administration of occupational pension schemes? Despite relaxations, the impact continues to be significant and is likely to endure for some time to come, and possibly indefinitely in terms of changes to some practices. It's therefore worth laying down the ground rules for sound governance and agile decision-making now so as to ensure that your practices are robust moving forwards into the future. Scheme governance is obviously a key area for trustees and is a focus of TPR in terms of the need for effective decision-making. This is particularly important at times when decisions need to be taken quickly on key areas such as funding and investment, as has been the case for many schemes recently. Usually, scheme governance, i.e. running trustee meetings and executing scheme documents, takes place with very few issues, but this has been turned on its head with the introduction of the stay-at-home, stay-alert measures, which have thrown up a whole host of issues in what is normally considered to be a relatively straightforward area. In this videocast, we'll look at some of the key issues that trustees are facing in practice and explore some of the practical workarounds that we're seeing. We'll start by looking at holding trustee meetings and making decisions in the current environment. We'll then look at the practicalities of running virtual meetings and some of the alternative ways that we're seeing trustees make decisions in the current climate to get around the lockdown restrictions. We'll also touch on how to deal with a situation where a trustee is placed on furlough leave. And lastly, Emma will talk about some of the issues that we've seen when executing documents in lockdown and how these can be dealt with in practice. So first up is Tasman, who will run us through the challenges when holding virtual meetings. Thanks, Kate. Well, clearly the social distancing measures have made it impossible to hold trustee meetings in person. So this has led to the increased use of programmes like Skype and Zoom to hold trustee meetings virtually. So what are the main issues that trustees need to consider when looking to hold a virtual trustee meeting? Well, first, it's important to check if it's even possible from a legal perspective. So this will be in the scheme rules or in the case of a corporate trustee in its Articles of Association. It will vary from scheme to scheme, so some rules will expressly say that trustee meetings need to be held in person, whilst others will permit meetings to be held via video conference or telephone. For a corporate trustee, it's possible that the Articles of Association may be more up to date, but it's still always really important to check this point. If there is an issue, technically, it's always possible to amend the rules to expressly allow meetings to be held virtually. But as Emma will go on to talk about, actually executing amendments in the current environment presents its own particular challenges. It's also worth noting that if there is any ambiguity, it's open to the trustees to ratify any decisions made at these virtual meetings at a future date. The second point that it's worth checking is the number of trustees required to make valid decisions. And that's because in the current climate, it may not be possible for the full trustee board to attend all meetings. So, for example, if one or more trustees fall ill. 
And it's also worth noting that there may be specific requirements for member nominated trustees or directors that need to be thought through. If those can't be met, it may be worth thinking about changing the scope of the MNT and MND arrangements to make them slightly more flexible. If the quorum requirements can't be met, in the case of a corporate trustee, it's also worth looking at whether an alternate could be appointed to stand in and take any decisions instead. But before taking this option, you'd need to check the articles of association for any formalities and protections that are offered for alternates. And of course, if all else fails, it's always possible to simply appoint more directors or trustees on a short term basis to fill any vacancies and lend any further support to the board that's required. So in terms of the practical points to bear in mind when running a virtual trustee meeting, we just wanted to flag a couple of points here. The first is the choice of venue. So whether it's held by video or audio, which provider you choose and whether there are any limits on the number of attendees. It's also worth considering the agenda. So meetings can generally be more difficult to follow online and there's always the risk that the attendees could inadvertently speak over each other. So given that, it's worth thinking through how that could be effectively managed. So, for example, it's helpful if there's a strong chairperson to manage the discussions. Having a clear agenda is generally helpful and it might be worth allocating clear responsibility for the different sections of the meeting. As a final practical point, it's worth thinking about the length of the meeting. Online meetings can be difficult to follow and it can work better if they're slightly shorter or maybe split up into several different sections with breaks in between. So now I'll hand over to Kate to talk about alternative options where it's really just not possible to hold a trustee meeting virtually. Thanks, Tasman. Inevitably, though, it won't always be possible to hold a trustee meeting virtually. For example, if there's an express restriction under the scheme rules, or if it's not possible for quorum requirements to be met. One example that we've seen is where one of the trustees of a scheme is a doctor, so that person won't be able to attend any trustee meetings at the moment. If it's really not possible to hold a trustee meeting even on a virtual basis, there are a couple of other ways to make decisions. The first step is always to check the scheme rules and articles of association for a corporate trustee. Are trustees allowed to make decisions in writing? And is there a prescribed form for these? For example, is it possible to use email? Do these decisions need to be unanimous or can they be taken by the majority of trustees and directors? If the rules or the articles permit, you can take decisions by circulating a resolution, which each trustee or director signs to evidence their agreement and each party can sign their own copy. The downsides to this approach are the fact that usually it has to be unanimous, the sheer administrative burden of managing the signing process, the absence of discussion and debate, and most importantly, the time it takes to complete this process. That said, it could be appropriate for certain types of decisions and can be bolstered by prior discussion by telephone or by email. Another option is to delegate the decision to a subcommittee of available trustees or trustee directors. This would allow any trustees or directors who are able to hold virtual meetings to conduct scheme business. This also depends on the scheme rules and articles of association and, of course, the availability of the relevant trustees or directors. One thing just to note is that if non-trustees are co-opted to a committee, care needs to be taken as to the scope of decision-making permitted. So once a subcommittee has been established, 
best practice would still be to copy in all the other trustees or directors on the agenda and the meeting papers so that they can participate and contribute if they want to, even though their attendance is not required for the subcommittee meeting to be quorum. It's also important that a subcommittee is given clear terms of reference that should be documented in writing. There will, of course, be times when none of these options will be available. In that instance, it's important to take a pragmatic approach. So in the first instance, you can consider whether to amend restrictive practices, if not now, as soon as it is possible. There is a risk that decisions that are not made within the strict parameters of the scheme rules or articles of association could potentially be subject to challenge in future. However, if trustees act in accordance with TPR guidance and in a way that's the best that they can do in the circumstances, they're less likely to be subject to criticism in these difficult times. They can also, of course, ratify these decisions after the lockdown restrictions have been lifted. So now back to Tasman to have a look at trustees on furlough. Thanks, Kate. So finally, before we get on to document execution, we wanted to briefly touch on something that we've been asked about a couple of times since the government's furlough scheme was introduced. And this is whether a furloughed employee who is also a trustee or trustee director of the employer's pension scheme can continue as a trustee after they've been put on furlough. So the initial government guidance in the first Treasury direction weren't entirely clear on this. So they just set out that furloughed employees were not allowed to carry out any work, either directly or indirectly for their employer. But helpfully, the second, trustee the second Treasury direction then introduced an exemption to allow employees on furlough to undertake work for the sole purpose of fulfilling duties as a trustee of the employer's occupational pension scheme. So that exemption covers trustee directors, but it's worth noting that it doesn't apply to employees who are in acting as independent trustees or where the business activities of the employer include the provision of services as a trustee of the scheme. In practice, the scheme's employer may just not want to risk not being able to claim under the government scheme. And in that case, they'd need to consider whether the trustee should simply withdraw from their duties until the end of the furlough period. And then that takes us back to considering the other options for making decisions that we've just talked about. So I'll now hand over to Emma, who will talk in a bit more detail about the issues relating to document execution in the current environment. So I'm going to cover valid execution of documents in a lockdown situation, which does give rise to some legal and practical considerations. So at this point, you've been through your decision making process. You've got a carefully drafted document. And what you really want to make sure is that you don't fail at the last hurdle and that you get the document validly signed on the right date. So my top tip is to consider the signing requirements right at the outset of the process. So definitely don't leave it to the last minute and make sure that you have a backup plan. And so it's, it's important to consider, well, what are the signing requirements? So is it a company that's going to be signing or individuals? And if it's a company, are there any restrictions in the articles of association? So, for example, if you've got a trustee company, it might be standard practice that you sign with two trustee directors. But if the articles permit, it might be much better to sign with just one trustee director. 
Now, the next thing to consider is what is the document that you're going to be signing? So is it a contract or is it a deed? And if it's a deed, there are statutory requirements. If it's an individual signing that says that you need to have your signature witnessed and that witness does need to be present when you're signing the document. So unfortunately, you can't sign and have someone witness that via a video link. So the person does need to be present. And that definitely gives rise to some challenges in the current situation. And we've seen some proposals put forward on how to get around that with people kind of peeking over garden fences or looking at things through windows and some not so sensible solutions to that problem. But for the main part, given the current situation, actually getting a spouse or a adult family member to sign and they'll be living with the individual in the household, that actually will be fine in most scenarios. And we're comfortable that that will be a validly executed document. So it is helpful to, to know that. The next thing to consider is, well, what method of execution are you actually going to use? So you'll need to consider the practical aspects of what technology the individuals have at home. So some documents will be really large, over 100 pages, it's not going to be practical for someone to print that off at home and there's certainly not going to be any person signing meetings going on at the moment. It is possible to carry out a virtual signing without needing to print off the document, so that is helpful. So what you do is you send the PDF of the execution version of the contract with a separate signature page. The individual prints off signs and if it needs to be witnessed gets their signature witnessed and then scans that back and as long as they send it back with the full version of the execution document that is a valid signature so that is helpful definitely in the current situation what you might find though is that people don't have a printer at home and they don't have the ability to scan something back so what we are actually seeing used a lot more commonly is electronic signing using a form of software where the individual can sign the document using software that allows them to type their signature in or copy and paste the electronic version of their signature into the document. So the document's sent by email, the individual goes into it, it means they don't need to rely on a printer, they can simply go in, execute the document and send it back. And Obviously, if there's a time critical signing, you need to make sure that the person that's going to be using this software is okay with it and comfortable. But actually, it's fairly straightforward. And as a security measure, they do get a separate access code sent to them so that they can cover off the security aspects of that. And they need both the email and the access code to get into the document to sign it. It's still worth noting, though, that even though it's been signed electronically, there are the normal execution formalities that need to be observed. So if it does need a signature witnessed, that will still need to take place electronically. And it's really helpful actually that the Law Commission has recognised that digital signatures do meet the requirements for contracts to be in writing and for them to be signed. It's also worth noting that there is a bit of flexibility in this. So you can mix and match the methods that people use to sign the contract. You could have one individual who signs with a wetting signature and another one electronically. So that just provides a bit more flexibility in the current environment. So if you do have any questions on execution documents, then we're obviously happy to answer those questions. Thank you for joining us for the second Pensions Lawcast in the series.
We hope that you found it useful with some things to think about and to take away. Do let us know if you have any questions, which you can send us by email. And we also hope you'll join us for the rest of our Lawcast series, which will be aired soon. Thank you again for listening.